Claire, and you're listening to the Mother Love Podcast, a show where we talk about the journey of parenting. This is a space where guests open their hearts, gather their courage, and tell the truth about what it means to care for these messy and delightful little ones in today's big, wide, and often overwhelming world. We talk about the pressures, the steep learning curves, and the bittersweet reality of watching our children grow. Parenting asks us to be willing to feel it all, celebration and grief, joy and anguish, fear and courage. So take a breath, let these stories wash over you, and show yourself a little love. Hi, Mother Love listeners. I'm here with Dr. Samantha Greenberg today. Also, I think you sometimes go by Sam. Is that okay? If we do yes, Sam? Sam is fine. Okay. It's funny. I feel like I already kind of know you uh, just from the conference alone, like the way that you would chime in at the uh, perinatal mental health conference. I was just like, Ooh, I want to have her on the podcast. Like, I think that that would be really a valuable interview. So I'm glad you agreed. Yeah, I'm flattered. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just talk about your day so far. Are Fridays different than the average day for you in your world? Starting four weeks ago, Fridays are my work from home day, which is a very new thing for me. Um, And today is actually my first day where I'm successfully working from home on a Friday, I think. so. (laughs) As opposed to like getting distracted every other moment by every other thing? Or, you know, showing up at work, even though I don't need to be at work or um, I had a delivery last week on a Friday. And so I ended up being at work work. And so, yeah, this is not very good at downshifting. So today I'm trying to embrace it a little bit. Good. Yes. And we already talked about your drinking tea and not coffee. At because 10 p.m. me does not appreciate the afternoon coffee. Uh, yeah. And then we talked about how neither does 10 p.m. Claire. However, like, we'll just, I'll talk to her when we get there. And I'll be like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> we are still drinking coffee. It's just been a really busy day. So that's how it goes sometimes. But yeah, so I, I just want listeners to get to know a little bit more about you as a person before we dive into your career and work life, which is what we'll probably spend a lot of time talking about. Um, I was curious in getting to know you better. I'm always so curious about like now that you are a doctor and a, a family medicine practitioner, when you look back like to Samantha as a kid, were you interested? Like, were you the kind of kid who was like, performing surgeries on their dolls or like did you have parts of you that now you look back and I'm like oh I guess that makes sense um (laughs) I don't think so actually no I think I've always been someone who um was really interested in how things work yeah and sort of you know a little bit nerdy a lot of bit nerdy And I think that's kind of how I ended up finding my way through to be a physician. And I was really, you know, I think like teenage college me was very into like social justice and, you know, sexual health and reproductive health and how that is an equity issue. And that is sort of how I found myself into the type of work we do. But I don't know that like small child me was performing surgeries on my stuffed animals. So I can ask my parents. They probably remember. (laughs) 
<laughs> I just feel like sometimes you're like, yep, yep. Like you look back at the very root beginning and you're like, okay, that makes sense. But also having a deep curiosity about how things work makes sense to me that then, I mean, the body works in all kinds of crazy, mysterious, intricate ways. So it makes sense that that would translate over. Yeah. Nice. And when you did start studying medicine, like how did you, what made you particularly interested in like maternal child health? Yeah. Um, Like I said, I'd always had this sort of idea about sexual and reproductive health as a, as an equity issue. And so I think that's what sort of drove me into this area of wanting to work in women's health through medicine. And I've also always been really interested in the intersection between medicine and public health, you know, medicine being sort of the individualized person to person care and public health sort of being the larger community based uh, population health. And I didn't actually think that I was going to go into maternal child health. I think I had this sort of romantic idea of what obstetrics looked like, you know, from television and things like that. And so as a medical student, I was really looking forward to my OB rotation and it had none of the magic that I thought it would, you know, birth didn't feel like this sort of amazing moment that you're witnessing something. And unfortunately that is the case in a lot of places birth doesn't show up that way. And so I thought this is not something I'm going to do. I'm definitely going to still sort of work in this reproductive health and sexual health realm, but I don't think birth is something that is interesting to me. And then in residency, I happened to go to a residency program that um, had a very large obstetrics component to it. And we had a really midwifery based model of birth and I think in the first few births I did as a resident, I just saw really that magic that I was hoping or thinking that would exist show up. And that birth can really be, when done with intention, this moment where you're holding space for a patient who's going through this incredible transition, even if they've already become a parent before, it's still one of the most emotionally charged times of anyone's life. And it's transformative and you can show up and you can support that. And there's a way to do that. And Mm. from there I was hooked. And I don't think I knew that I was going to be interested in maternal mental health until I myself was pregnant and had kids. And actually it was my midwife. I had moved to Montana when I was sort of early in my first pregnancy and my midwife, Jana Sund, who I think has been a not person on the podcast, but a f- frequently spoken about person on the podcast because she runs postpartum resource group here in Kalispell, mm-hmm. um, was one of my midwives. And she said, oh, are you interested in, in this work that we're doing? We need more board members and take a look if you're interested. And so that was my first sort of foray into the area of maternal mental health. And from there, that's sort of been a big part of my career since then. Will you say more about the contrast between your first experience with OB care and then when you experienced the midwifery model? Like, like why, why did it seem sort of not the magic you were hoping for? And then it was the magic you were hoping for. 
And, you know, I've been really lucky to always work at places where I think the idea that birth is very powerful is central in the way that people are practicing birth. And, um, but there's lots of places in the U S that unfortunately, and I'm sure in other places too, that that is not the case. And it's very medicalized. It's very interventional. Um, there's a lot of focus on you're here to deliver a baby and not, this is a person who is birthing. And this is an experience that, um, that we need to center the patient in. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I was exposed to as a medical student at a big academic center is that very medicalized, not personal experience, right? Where mm -hmm. um, intervention is just assumed and there's not a lot of space for, for the patient and for their experience in it. And I think in an ideal world, something that you know, I think we say it's a more of a midwifery-based model, but lots of people practice that way. Midwives, obstetricians, family physicians who do OB, where the idea is, yes, we have interventions that we have to do in birth for lots of reasons, right? But we have to do them intentionally and with patient consent. And when we really understand and know our patients and what their preferences are, that we can still sometimes have a medicalized birth in a way that is very patient centered and that meets the needs of a patient and honors the magic that really is the experience of birth, right? Like yeah. there's nothing, there's nothing quite like it. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm just so happy to hear that. And I wonder, you know, as time has gone along, and you, how long have you been delivering babes now? I've been delivering babes for almost eight years now oh my God. since I graduated from residency. Yeah. So a little bit longer if you consider residency too. Yeah. What was like, you know, we've already talked about the contrast, but from the first, I like that we're using this term babe from the first babe <laughs> you delivered <laughs> up until like the most recent, which was maybe last Friday, maybe there have been babes last, in between. This weekend. Yeah. Last weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you think has changed in the way that you feel about it in the way different, like things that you figured out are really important or work really well? How's that sort of evolved for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think being a parent myself and having someone being someone who is birthed definitely changed how I view people going through the experience of birth or how I feel like I can show up for someone going through the experience of birth. I think I always appreciated the nuances, but I think I have a deeper understanding and an ability to sort of reflect back on my own experiences as well as all of the experiences of everyone who I have delivered with, where I've been in the room while they're delivering and say like, I have a greater breadth of understanding of what is normal what maybe is not normal, mm -hmm. where a, I don't want to use the word intervention because I feel like intervention like connotates medical intervention, right? But like yeah. where a tip or support or, you know, how to help someone get through a process, either if it's just with verbal reassurance or with repositioning or 
like I just have a better understanding from having done this more over the course of time. It definitely never, I don't think loses its magic. I think it's always an exciting and magical experience. I think it's as exciting and magical as it was when I first started doing it as it was last weekend, for instance. But I think my toolkit is larger is maybe the best way to say that. Yeah. And I feel like even beyond maybe the experience of birth itself, definitely being a parent, I think gives me just a deeper understanding of how powerful, I don't want to say difficult, but how transformative or powerful that transition from having never been a parent to being a parent is, or even having been a parent of one to being a parent of more than one. It's a moment that is instantly changing. Like the person you were before that is not the person you are after that. And I think that's maybe something that I didn't appreciate before I was a parent. And yeah, I think even someone, I think we talked about this in our pre-recording talk that Uh like, you know, people can tell you like, oh, you're going to be sleep deprived, or this is sort of experiences you're going to have when you become a parent. And there's no way to truly prepare for that until you are experiencing it. It's just, it sounds so nonsensical. And so I, I think from that perspective, I'm able to show up for my patients in a way that just feels more authentic yeah. and relatable when, you know, especially when we're talking about mood disorders, like mm. these I have a better understanding of the things that people may be experiencing and then to help be able to walk beside them in those experiences. Yeah. And so you do, you are with patients throughout their prenatal care, right? And then. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very fortunate as a family physician who specializes in OB, I get to see patients from sometimes before they're pregnant, I'm seeing them as just primary care patients Mm -hmm. through pregnancy, delivery, and then their postpartum care and actually get to take care of their babies a lot of times too, because I do, you know, as a family doctor, I do full spectrum babies to birth to geriatric patients. Okay. Listen, is there a world in which that is just the normal, like how every medical facility operates because I feel like that is the missing piece. Like in so many ways, we talk about these like drop-offs of care where you suddenly have to shift to like a whole new building, a whole new person, a whole new staff, like all these things. And it's, it's hard on moms and families and babies. (laughs) And, you know, when I just, I wonder like, do you see a recognition of the value in this continuity of care? Please say yes. (laughs) Yes and no. I mean, I think as a family physician, I definitely feel that's what drew me to this type of work is that it was important to me. And I see the, I, I totally see where right patients fall off that edge, right? You've been getting your prenatal care and postpartum care, which goes to six weeks. If your insurance covers it up to six weeks, then you drop off and you're no longer a prenatal patient. And you can still see your obstetrics provider for GYN things, but for non-GYN or obstetrics things, that's not within their wheelhouse. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just, like you said, is this time of now we got to find something different. Now I've got to establish with someone new. Now I have to find a different provider for my kid to see who I don't, necessarily have a established rapport with or trust. I think in an ideal world, family medicine would be the way it always is. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know that as a country, we have a lot of recognition that that is important or that needs to be lifted up. Definitely, there are more family medicine residency programs, um, and those programs are growing every year. So we're training more family physicians. Okay, that's good. Which is great. And I think in places like Montana, family medicine is much more the norm than Mm -hmm. it is in more urban places Mm -hmm. or even on the coast. So here, I feel like we have a lot more presence of family medicine, you know, and that's also what sort of drew me to this job that I'm doing right now, where I'm, I work for the Family Medicine Residency of Western Montana, which is a training program for family physicians. And our mission is to train family physicians for the state of Montana to work in our rural and underserved communities where we know that we have very few, if any, primary care providers in some places in Montana. So that is, I think, what motivates me in my job. I just, I see that as something that is so integral, right, to the health of our patients and the health of moms and babies and families. So I'm hopeful that there is continued movement to it. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that you're someone who's teaching people and and getting that going, at least in our state. And, you know, I, especially when we talk about maternal mental health, right? Like the trust factor is so huge there. It's so scary and vulnerable to share with someone that you're struggling in that way as a new mom, or even, you know, any, at any point in life, but at any point along your perinatal journey, like just, it's just, hard to like admit even like for me it was hard to admit it to myself it was hard to come to a provider and say it and not know what their response would be you know especially if I didn't have an established trusted relationship with them and there's more and more talk about you know now we need to screen at pediatricians offices and now we need and all these things and I just keep going back to my own experience and thinking well all of that is great. And I want to hear more about what you think about the screening Mm -hmm. dilemma that exists. But I, I just always would have had this uh, hang up about speaking honestly about what I was going through if I didn't know the person if they were like, basically a stranger getting paid to care for me, you know. And so in your case, because you have these long lasting relationships with people, I would think that it would be a little bit easier for them to say, Hey, I don't think I'm okay. Yeah. I think it is easier for patients that feel like they already have an established trust with their provider because right. I think it can go one of many ways. If you yourself recognize you you are experiencing mental health challenge in the postpartum period. One is you think this must be just how everyone feels. And this isn't necessarily a problem. Or if it is a problem, I just got to figure out how to deal with it because like, it just is what it is. This is what being a parent is. This is what being, you know, yep. a new mom is, mm-hmm. or you feel like if I tell someone they're going to think I'm a bad mom mm-hmm. or they're going to think I'm crazy mm-hmm. or they're going to take my kids away from me, especially mm-hmm. for patients who, yep. you know, are re- like are coming from a place where they don't have a lot of support or they have some other challenges. Like I think that that concern is a reality for a lot of patients, especially that I care for. And then 
the flip side is I can tell someone and they just don't acknowledge it. It's not taken seriously, which is kind of the experience that I know that you've talked about having. And so having those longitudinal relationships where you feel like you can trust the person if you're going to choose to open up, I think is huge. I think the other thing is back to that. This is just how everyone feels. This is normal. I think what I see very often in my practice is patients who I see are exhibiting signs of peripartum anxiety or depression and just really aren't in the headspace to either acknowledge that or it's just sort of not something that they're in the place to deal with at that time. And that's okay. But having this longitudinal relationship, I, I'm hopeful that over time we'll sort of be able to get there, right? Or at the very least, being a provider that this is sort of central to the way that I care for patients. And it's something that, you know, I've done a lot of work to educate myself on that even if we never get to the place where we're acknowledging that there's an issue or seeking treatment, that at least I can hold space for that person in the experiences that they're having. And I think I see very often that maybe we've talked about mood or anxiety early on in pregnancy or early on in the postpartum period. And it's acknowledged and we talk about it maybe a little bit. And someone says, like, I don't really think that's something I'm dealing with right now, or it's not a struggle that I totally am feeling I'm having, or they're just not in a headspace to be able to acknowledge it. And then many visits later, either in the postpartum period or even later in their pregnancy, we're able to come full circle and say, yeah, actually, this is something that I feel like I'm struggling with. Yeah. And I think that's huge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if there was this sort of break in care, potentially it would have been less likely to come up or mm-hmm. even if it's not less likely to come up, like I think we've already established that this is a safe place for, it to, yeah. for us to talk about it. Right. Right. And I know that you have had, both you and I have had our own experiences of mental health challenges as new moms. And so has, has that changed? Kind of like you said, with giving birth, like you can't know it until you know it, which is like any lived experience thing, right? Like until you can put yourself, like go from doctor in room to now I'm patient in bed and this hurts a lot, (laughs) all the things like you can't have that full understanding. So when you're talking to moms, you know, and they are sharing with you like, Oh, I think I might be struggling with anxiety or I'm really scared. I can't sleep. Like I haven't slept. And that was something that you experienced like, is there a, a difference? Have you seen a shift or in the way that you're able to understand that and hold space and speak about it? I think that there is. And I think it's maybe even a change in the way I sort of give the anticipatory guidance or I talk about mm-hmm. mood early on in the postpartum period, sometimes in the peri- you know, in the perinatal period before birth, that I think... I think a lot of the things that people just chalk up to sort of the normal stuff, maybe it is normal, but it can sort of quickly tiptoe from this is normal postpartum, I'm having trouble sleeping to now we're sort of in more anxiety or depression territory, or just like sort of interfering with everyday function territory. And so I think being able to say things like, if you find that you aren't able to sleep, not because your baby's not sleeping, like maybe your baby woke up and has gone back to bed and you were up all night because 
you can't fall asleep because you're worried about something happening to your baby or because you're just too anxious to be able to fall asleep, period. Or you're up all night Googling, you know, is this normal baby behavior? Is it like, what is the best sleep solution? You know, I'm going to buy this, you know, sleep sack for 60 bucks on the internet because this is going to solve all of the problems. And I'm going to, you know, buy every single thing possible. Like, you know, I think that that is starting to tiptoe into. Yeah maybe territory that's not serving us. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think sometimes I phrase it that way because I think people do have such a stigma on having anxiety or having depression. And so I like to talk a lot of, I like to talk about it more in this way of like things that we're doing or feeling that are maybe serving us or not serving us. Right. And so I just think having had those personal experiences allows me to have a more nuanced conversation. Yeah, Which like I think you, resonates with patients. Yeah. Like, you know how certain things will land and it's not just what you say. It's the delivery of how you exactly. say it. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, having that, being able to ha- be in a relationship with a patient where you can suggest, hmm, you know, what you're telling me sounds like anxiety. Hmm. It sounds like depression. It sounds like this is stressing to you. Mm-hmm. I think is helpful mm-hmm. because as the patient, I think sometimes you're just so in it, it's hard to know. Right. So even sure. if you do get the courage to say like, Oh, I've acknowledged that this is not wrong. I think for every one patient that's able to acknowledge it, that something yeah. doesn't feel right. There's many more patients that are struggling to acknowledge it. And I mean, <laughs> I think a little bit like now that it's something that is so at the forefront of my mind, I feel like I see it almost all of the time. Right. Yeah. And I think that's helpful. Uh huh. Yeah. I think it just normalizes things and lets people feel seen and not alone. Cause I think that's so much of what drives a lot of peripartum mood is feeling unseen and alone and not sure who to reach out to and not knowing what's normal and not normal. Yeah. And I want, I wanted to like act like and pretend that I was okay in hopes that I just would become then okay. Yes. (laughs) Like the sort of like adage of fake it till you make it kind of a Mm -hmm. thing. Turns out that doesn't actually work for things like breastfeeding and maternal mental health. Like, and I think what was shocking to me was like, I had had pretty high success rates with that strategy in every other area of my life until I became a mom. And then I was like, oh no, this doesn't work anymore. Well, because your reserves are so low, right? And I think a lot of, you know, we, the data shows, I mean, anyone can develop postpartum depression or anxiety, right? But the data does show that you're more likely to develop it if you've had previous experiences with anxiety and depression. And I think, you know, so much of what's the difference between like, we're functionally anxious and getting through our day, or we're functionally depressed and getting through our day, and now we're not is that reserve piece, right? And so, You take someone then and say, okay, now be up all night, breastfeeding this child, something you've never done before and not sleeping and hormones and, you know, the dysregulation of sleep related to labor and all of these other things. Like, I think that's where the coping strategies, you know, that we can fake it till we make it. We'll just get through it. It'll just be fine. Breaks down. Yeah. And then it's terrifying when that doesn't work and it has always worked. And it's very terrifying to know that like, you know, if that strategy had failed in the past, like pre-mom life, it was like, okay, well, 
is just reroute, figure something else out, or like quit doing this thing that is causing me so much distress. Uh And then suddenly you have this beautiful baby staring back at you. You're like, Oh, like I really do have to figure this out. And Mm -hmm. like, if pretending that everything is okay, isn't working, then I'm going to have to say, actually, everything's not okay. And look at that and be real about that. And for me, that was like super terrifying because my, you know, everyone has their different coping strategies, but mine were like, run (laughs) or, you know, or like just pretend everything's okay until it is like, I still do that when I get sick. I'm like, I'm not sick. I'm fine. And like half the time it works, you know? And so it's just one of those things and, and the stakes are so high all of a sudden. And also you like, I think having it go, having it be so much harder than I thought it would be like added another layer of, of difficulty there and of kind of like self judgment and, and a sense of failure and all those things that kind of come along with it. And the feeling of like, oh no, like I'm missing this time. I'm missing out on this time that I thought was going to be so gorgeous and yummy and like, like just all pure, like soft lens love type of a thing. And then it isn't. And that in and of itself is like, I remember feeling like, oh no, like this, these like first days are slipping away from me and I'm really scared and quite miserable. And like, I don't get them back. And there was sort of like a panic in me about that. Yes. And I think, right, there's this idea that like, and I think it's an internal idea, but I think it's also like this idea that definitely there's a lot of societal forces that tell us, right, that like, you need to enjoy every second of it. You need to be so grateful. It's something maybe you've worked for for so long to become a parent, right? And right, these moments are so fleeting, we have to be present for them. And that just amplifies it even more Mm -hmm. that, you know, we feel like, gosh, well, now if I'm struggling, not only am I struggling, but now I'm sort of like losing sight of this idea that I had of what this would be like. And so, and now I'm not even remember or be present for these first few days that are so important or something I was so looking forward to. And then it just, I mean, it spirals, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then we wonder why moms have such a hard time. Yeah. It's like, of course, like we're just not set up. We're not setting ourselves up for success in the way that we message around these things and in the way that we show up for patients. And I do think that's where like this normalizing that these are things that are hard. These are things that you're, you may experience mm-hmm. is so important. Yeah. And that because then you don't feel like you're going through it alone. Yeah. And getting support doesn't mean you're failing. That was my biggest yeah thing I needed to like realize was like actually asking for support and not doing this alone is like, that doesn't mean that I didn't do well. It means like there is no doing it well until I get no. support. So yeah. 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 And there's no definition of doing it well. Like we right. do it in the way that works for us. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that I try to talk a lot about with my patients. You know, I'll get a lot of well, should I be doing this way or that way? Or what are your opinions on this or that, you know, sleep or feeding or, you know, any of these types of things. And what I try to say is like, well, let's find the thing again that works for you and serves you. And that the end of the day is the thing that keeps you sane, right? Because if the thing that is 
everything that you want and the thing that's going to keep you sane is for us to get you to the point where we're exclusively breastfeeding successfully, great. We will put all of our effort into that basket. And if that's not really the thing that in the end is going to serve you and keep you sane, like that's okay. Yeah. Right. We can find some other place that works for you, you know, and um, as opposed to this idea that like, this is exactly how you should do it. You should always exclusively breastfeed and you should, this is exactly the way you should sleep train or not sleep train your baby. Or this is the way, you know, like all of these things that we just, I feel like are taught are so dogmatic or just the way it is. Yeah. 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 One thing I'm curious about, because I want to hear a little bit more about your experience of becoming a mom and what those early days were like for you. And I don't think we talked about this before, but I sort of Mm -hmm. thought about it in between then and now. And I wondered if I had this experience with, I was working with a nurse from St. Pete's doing some like storytelling work up at the hospital these past couple of days, which has been really, really cool. But she, you know, had a really like traumatic birth and some really intense medical complications. And she talks about how having so much knowledge going into birth actually turned out to be like super scary for her because she knew everything that everyone was saying around her. She knew everything that was happening. She knew she was like, Oh my goodness, this is not good. But then she couldn't tell her husband because she didn't want him to be as terrified as she was. And so I wondered with you, like, you know, when you were going through your, your anxiety and your sleep issues that you guys had, was that, do you feel like that was hard? That made things harder sometimes to have like all the information that you had, or was it helpful? Um, I think that's a good question. I think I was sort of under this delusion that like, I know postpartum anxiety is a thing and I'm a baseline sort of anxious person, but that's not what this is. <laughs> so actually I think it was the exact opposite. It's like, no, no. And I remember like at postpartum visits, you know, seeing my midwife and you know, how are things? Great. Things are going fine. You know, really? Yeah, no, things are totally fine. Um, and it wasn't until I was pregnant with my second child and that my, the same midwife said, Okay, so this time, like, what are we going to do to help you with anxiety as opposed to last time where we just pretended it didn't happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I think that was really helpful. And again, like, you know, I think that gets back to the sort of importance of the longitudinal relationship, you know, right. even if I like didn't necessarily see care for this with this provider between pregnancies, right? Because they didn't provide that type of care. Mm -hmm. Like having a longitudinal relationship and knowing someone, I was like, okay, you know what? Right. Like maybe at the time I wasn't in a space where I could sort of acknowledge it, but now I can really be very thoughtful about it. And so, right. How are, what are some things that I can do to avoid being anxious? Okay. Um, being so rigid about, um, breastfeeding, for instance, Mm -hmm. like that, I think was something that was harder for me with my first birth that like this idea that like you're supposed to breastfeed every two to three hours for 15 minutes on each side and you're supposed to pay attention to exactly and you're supposed to record it and they have all these apps that you're supposed to record it and people are constantly asking you you know um and then you know if you mess a feed because you you know dared to 
go out and do something with your normal life, right? You have to then pump. And then this is like this whole, like, it becomes, I mean, that's a huge stress, right? Or, you know, thinking about, okay, what is actually the thing that is helpful? Like, is it actually helpful to have a ton of people in my house? Or do I feel like that actually was detrimental, right? And having more time, just sort of me and my family and that sort of cozy time, that actually is more protective. And so um, I think that's where that longitudinal relationship also sort of can show up as helpful. And maybe it's not for this one very specific point in time, but it's for next time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I remember feeling I had that same sort of rigidity and with my first baby around breastfeeding and Kyla would constantly fall asleep while I was feeding her. And then I was like, that's not in the book. Like, where's that in the book? Like, what do you do if your baby just keeps passing out while you're feeding Mm -hmm. them? And I remember my mom came over and she was like, well, maybe you shouldn't wake her up every two hours to feed her. And then just let the girl sleep. And I was like, oh, what a concept. Like, yeah. Yeah, because you're just trying to do it so right, right? I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it exactly the way that everyone tells you to do it. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, and I think like that and was a huge doctor, change. You exactly. Know, I was supposed to do it exactly this way. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I think then again, for my second child, like then knowing, you know, okay, that didn't work well. And so like even um, my second daughter ended up being in the NICU for a few days after birth, which could have been a really anxiety provoking experience. Yeah. And sort of at the very least then having had a plan going forward, which was like every time the NICU nurse would come in and ask me how frequently I had fed or how long I'd fed or how long I would just make up a number. Like I was like, cause I wasn't recording it because the recording yeah. was stressful Yeah, and just being okay with that being like, I'm yeah. just, I'm going to tell you something because otherwise you're going to keep on bugging me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, but having that coping strategy going in. Yeah. 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 Okay. I want to ask you about a couple hot topics. All right. Go for it. Let's talk about screening. In your opinion, here are some of the issues that I hear about screening a lot from, from, the doctor's perspective is, okay, I don't know what to do if a mom screens high, therefore Mm -hmm. I'm afraid to screen at all. And nurses, nurses say this too, or I'm afraid that if a mom screens high and she's really not doing well and she really needs help, I know that, that there are all of our mental health providers in the area are booked solid for the Mm -hmm. next five months. And I'm afraid to send her to uh, this like, okay, call seven numbers. None of them are going to have room for you. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I hear a lot of this, like, well, I was screened, but it was in a way where I just felt like it was like one of eight forms I was filling out. It didn't really Mm -hmm. matter that much because it didn't seem like it mattered that much to the provider or the nurse. Then I didn't feel like, why would I be honest? They don't really seem to care. It's just a formality that they're going through. So I would love to hear what you think are best practices for screening, how you do this and just your thoughts on the current, you know, conversation around screening. Yeah. I think to answer the first half, which is I'm afraid to screen because then I don't know what to do with the results or I don't have any resources is I, I hear that. And I definitely don't think we should be screening people and then no, have nothing, 
no idea of what we're going to do with that information afterwards because that's not beneficial, right? Like we shouldn't just screen just to screen and it's a piece of paper we don't acknowledge or we don't do anything about it. But also, regardless of whether or not you screened, the person is still feeling that way, right? So even if, let's say, all of your mental health providers you know are really booked out, it's not like not screening made the problem go away. You know what I mean? It's like, right. it's like this idea that about like, if we don't teach kids how to use condoms, then they're never going to have sex. It's like, well, no, <laughs> they still are going to. They're just yeah. also not going to know how to use condoms. So like, you know, the mom or the dad, the patient that you're seeing there is still having that experience. And I do think that there's a lot we can do even in absence of having other really great resources, which is, you know, acknowledging mm-hmm. the way someone feels, normalizing the way someone feels, screening for things that are really high risk, mm-hmm. like risk of suicidality, which we know is very high in the postpartum period. Like it's one of the top, I think it's the second leading cause of maternal death in this country. Yeah. You know, like there are still things we can do that make it a valid thing, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And we can create those resources for ourselves, right? And even if there's not a ton locally, there are online support groups that we could help refer people to, which may not be everyone's cup of tea. There are... I think there are things that we can do if we have sort of like armed ourselves to have the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we can then tailor the way that we're giving, we're talking to our patients to acknowledge that the way they're feeling like, and I know we talked about this in our first sort of pre-interview, you know, if a parent is really struggling with depression or anxiety, I, I can talk about, you know, these are the best practices for sleep, or this is what you're supposed to be doing for feeding, or this is all the tummy time you're supposed to be doing. And these are all the things you're supposed to be doing with your baby. But like, if we're not there mentally, Mm -hmm. because of everything else that's going on, that's not really like a good use of our time. And it's really actually potentially even driving that anxiety or that depression further, right? Because you're just telling someone something that they just don't feel like they're in a space to actualize. And so if we can, if we screen and someone screens positive for anxiety or depression, and we can acknowledge that and we can hold space for that in the room and say like, okay, well, what is realistic now? Like what, where are we at? I think we can only do better. And I think that also gets to me to the point of like, I think an argument people have also about screening, which isn't one that you mentioned is that like, I don't have time. Like, what do I do? I only have 20 minutes or only 40 minutes. And it's like, yes, but again, you, in absence of that information, yeah. everything else you're kind of doing potentially is not of high utility mm-hmm. um, or maybe is even making things worse. So yeah. to me, yes, it takes time for sure. Um, and just like anything in medicine, like we can't always solve the problem right there in the moment, but we can acknowledge, we can hold space, we can have close follow-up, right? Yeah, um, right. Whereas if we never ask the question at all, then we just don't know. Right. Yeah. And then there was a second part of your question that I feel like I've lost track of. Mm. Oh, which is like, I don't, patients not, maybe not feeling like the screening is being taken Mm. seriously. Like I'm given this form and it's not that important or no one knows what to do with Mm. it or why would I answer it truthfully? Um, 
I think that is totally a valid concern. I think screening and absence of having a conversation about screening probably is not very useful, right? So like, just here's this form, just like you're filling out your insurance information. Here's also this form about your mood and I'm not going to contextualize it probably doesn't have a lot of utility. And I think, unfortunately, for just the flow of our day, even in my office, that's the case, right? It's handed to you with this whole bunch of other stuff. Um, And I'm not seeing you until after you filled out all this paperwork. But then I think it's sort of either my job or my medical assistant's job as they're collecting that information to touch on it, right? And to sort of explain the importance. And, you know, even if someone's reports a normal score on their screener in a well child check, for instance, because that's, I mean, I'm, I screen in my office in during pregnancy and postpartum, but a big emphasis in my practices during well child care, especially mm-hmm. through the first year of life is always having a conversation about it too. Right. Yeah. And still asking about mood. So I think those things really do have to, in an ideal world, go in tandem because mm-hmm. And that's where the recurrence and the longitudinal nature is important because maybe you answered no to all of the questions the first time, either because you didn't feel like you could answer yes, or you weren't really sure of the importance of it, but the repeated touches on it, I think do have benefits. Yeah. Agreed. And I think that, you know, I've been talking to a lot of moms about this and I think that the discussion around making sure that this is continuing to happen at well child visits and in pediatric offices, even if that means there needs to be a whole nother look at training those providers in perinatal mood disorders. It's often the time when like, okay, everybody's sleeping again. We've got our feeding schedule down. All these sort of factors of like, is this anxiety and depression or is my life just in shambles because I have a newborn, right? And then things sort of can start to stabilize. This was a, for my really, really close friend. This happened with her and she was like, and I'm feeling worse than ever. And so like for her, it was like she didn't really realize that that's what she was going through until everything else sort of stabilized a little bit and everyone else yeah. was like doing good. And, you know, and she was like, oh no. Um, and, and she was like, and no one asked me at the pediatrician's office ever like about how I was feeling or what I was doing. And she's like, and I know that's where I, I probably, she's like, if someone would have just looked me in the eye and said like, well, how are you, mom? Like, she's like, I would have melted into a puddle of tears. Like, I know I would have. But they were just like, oh, baby's looking good, gaining weight, like all the things. See you later, alligator, you know? And and for when you're someone going through that, a mom especially, you're just like, oh, hey, like, <laughs> thanks, you know? And it feels like, who am I supposed to go to for help? I really hope that that becomes, starts to become more of a common thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I hope so too. It's something that I feel pretty passionately about that there's really good data to support that we should be screening Mm -hmm. and, you know, mood and anxiety disorder in parents, we know is tied to outcomes for babies and for kids. And so again, that's where I feel like maybe you don't feel like you have the time, but by not doing it or not acknowledging it, we're doing ourselves a disservice, right? Like, it is something right. Like if a parent has uncontrolled anxiety or depression, like we have data that shows that impacts development that impacts bonding and behavior and 
like we have to acknowledge it. Yeah. Cause it's still yeah. our job. I mean, if, even if you're thinking of yourself in this, like I'm caring for just the child as my patient, the mom's not my patient. Yeah. You know, right. it's affecting it. And then I think that's, I mean, again, I'm biased as a family physician. I think it's the beauty of family medicine, right. Is like often, not always, but often both the parent and the child are my patient. And even yeah. if the parent isn't my patient, like I can offer to care for you if you don't mm-hmm. have an established provider. Right. right. So I think yeah. that's sort of, where family medicine has its special role too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next hot topic. And then we will have to like wrap up pretty soon, which I know, is so- we're running out of time. I know we, I, this is, I feel like all the time, but there are some folks where I'm just like, man, we need like four more hours, but there has been a lot of conversation around like, how do we better support dads in all of this? And I would love to hear both what your experience has been with with your husband becoming a father and what that was like, and then just in general in your practice, how you really try to make sure that dad's doing okay too. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. And I think it's hard. I think, you know, so much of pregnancy care is so centered on the pregnant person. Mm-hmm. And often, but not always, we have partners who come to some visits or all visits. And I think we don't always do a great job of sort of acknowledging their presence or their role in care. And that's something I think that my husband mentioned a lot, you know, mm-hmm. people always talk to you. They never talk to me. They never ask me how I'm feeling. Um, and you know, or what questions I have. So I think centering partners in care, if they're showing up to care, if they're showing up with their, with their pregnant partner to care, I think is really important because I think it builds a rapport and a bond. Um, and I think it sort of normalizes being able to ask them how they're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I try to do during prenatal care. If there are partners that are coming to visits is try to make sure that we're engaging and, you know, making sure that they have their questions answered and that they feel like they're part of the process. And then Mm -hmm. the same in, you know, postpartum and well child care is, you know, if more than one parent is coming to those visits, like if I'm going to ask mom how her mood's doing, I should ask dad how his mood's doing too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we usually include like for what we do in our practice for our workflow, for instance, is we cl- include a screener in the well child packet that is part of like they're answering about developmental milestones. And then they also fill out their mood questionnaire. I don't include two copies but I always offer mm-hmm. um, if there's two parents for them to do, to do a screener as well. But I think, I don't know that we have great best practices about how to make sure that we are engaging dads in care or that we're sort of picking up on when they're experiencing anxiety and depression. But I think if we normalize them being an integral part of that visit, mm-hmm. They are going to pick up on it more. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think especially when we are acknowledging or recognizing that a mom is struggling with her mental health, then we also really need to make sure that we're checking in with dads because dads are more likely to experience mental health concerns when their partner is also experiencing them. And so they can, dads can have postpartum depression or anxiety alone without mom being affected, but they're more likely to have it when there is something else of high stress going on. So 
Yeah. That's not yeah. a perfect answer, but. No, I mean, I, it's an emerging thing. And for the longest time, I was kind of like adamant about like, which I feel so silly talking about this now, but I used to be like, uh, excuse me, no, like <laughs> the, the mom gets the attention because she's the one birthing. She's the one breastfeeding. She's this and that. And then what I have since learned is like, well, uh, you also need your partner to be well if you have a partner they're supporting you because that is contribute like it isn't supposed to be completely separate right like you're yeah. supposed to be on the same team and so and that wasn't my experience and so i think that i have a a weird perspective on it but the more i'm seeing like okay even just you know at during the actual like labor like I hear a lot of a lot of dads or a lot of partners saying like I just felt completely invisible and help, mm-hmm. like, like helpless like I like I'm watching you don't this know what to do yeah be in so much pain I don't know how to help I can't help I don't really know the ins and outs of like how this is supposed to go the only thing I can do is get ice chips like I don't know what to do <laughs> no? and, so, and so I wonder like do you have specific strategies that you guys use to kind of like give dad a job or give, you know, like help them feel included. And it's probably like, there's no, there's no one tip for everyone. Everyone's different, but. Everyone's different. And it's so hard because you don't always have partners at prenatal visits to even have that conversation. I probably, as we're talking about this and thinking like I'm making a whole list in my mind of like, I could be much more intentional about asking my patients, how would you like your partner to, how much would you like your partner to be involved? Asking partners if they're there what roles they feel like they would want to have or how involved they want to be. Definitely. I try to in the labor room include dads or partners sort of as an integral person providing labor support. And I think also acknowledging or being cognizant of like not overstepping on that for them, right. If someone is providing support in whatever way, like acknowledging that and saying like, that's a really great job. Like you're providing really good, you know, counter pressure showing like here, this is something that I'm doing, but if you want to do this, this would be a job that I think you could Mm. take on Um, and trying to be a little bit more intentional about those things. So people don't feel like they don't have a role. Right. And also acknowledging, like you said, that everyone has their different level of comfort. Right. Yeah. I think well, I'm yeah, seeing yeah. a lot more is dads asking like to be help help in the delivery themselves uh-huh. and trying to to allow to have that be something that, you know, it's not yeah. like they're wanting to have to necessarily deliver a whole baby, but like anyone who's feeling like they can get their hands in there and yeah. have some sort of that yeah. involvement I think is important. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, and then you have to keep in mind like people's relationships too. like maybe mom doesn't want dad anywhere near her <laughs> like, and not, yeah. not because of the state of the relationship necessarily, but there were parts in my labor. Where I was like, ain't no one, no one coming in three feet of this thing that's happening right now. Like, no, I'm not yeah. wearing a gown. Yes. I'm going to swear a lot and I don't want anyone near me, you know? So everyone has their different styles too, which can change like moment to moment when you're, mm-hmm that situation. So yeah, yeah, but I've just been hearing a lot more lately about like, we feel like 
dads are being left out and not like, in a like, Oh, poor dad. But like, you know, like, uh Oh, like we really, if we can, we really do need to make sure dads are okay. And that they're feeling important and like significant in their role and um, confident. And so I think that's something that's changing, but like you said, it's, it's kind of a newer, like even, even really um, well-established practitioners are like, Oh, okay. I need to, this is something I need to like really look at. So Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's something we could probably all sort of put more in the forefront. And I've got all these ideas of things I'm going to do. Yay. I love it. <laughs> Let me know. I want to see your list when you're done. Yeah. And then we'll share it out with everyone so they can start doing all those. Well, what are you guys going to do this weekend? Anything big on the horizon? I don't think so. So we're, we've been in this very midst of a very long home improvement project that, you know, I feel like like most projects gets to like 75% completion and then doesn't go anywhere after yep. that. So I think we're going to try to push through and uh, actually finish our kitchen remodel, which, um, you know, we've had this microwave that we're going to like install in a cabinet for the last year that's been sitting in my garage. <laughs> so it'd be nice to actually get that done. Yes. Stuff like that. It's going to be a gorgeous yeah. weekend. So hopefully yeah. some outside time. It's finally sunny today. I feel like we've nice. been so socked in for weeks. So, yeah, I don't miss that about the flathead. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. How much sunnier in the winter. It's when it's nice. good, it's good. But when it's yep. not, <laughs> yeah. And how old are your kids now? I should remember, but I don't. Yeah, my oldest just turned five last weekend, and then my youngest is two. Oh, fun! Yeah, yeah. so you guys can go out and get a little muddy, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank you so much for being here and having this conversation today. It just yeah. means a lot. We don't get a chance to talk directly with providers. So it's really exciting to be able to do that. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I was very flattered when you asked me to be on. So, Mother Love is hosted by Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies, the Montana Coalition, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the health and well-being of families who are expecting or raising little ones. Opinions and views expressed in these interviews do not necessarily represent the views of HMHB as an organization. We sincerely value the lived experiences shared on Mother Love, and we understand that not everyone will agree with or relate to all of what is shared. Mother Love exists to help our guests and listeners honor and embrace their own stories and experiences. If the content in this episode has caused you concern or distress, please reach out to someone you trust for support. Speaking up about our struggles is half the battle, sometimes more than half, and there are many providers who can and want to help. Visit our statewide online resource guide at www.hmhb-lifts.org to help you find resources in your area. Thank you to our incredible editor and producer, Brooke Boone Miller, for sharing her gifts with us. She's a mom and she gets it. And for that, we are so grateful. 